Romans chapter 10, 5 to 13. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same law is law of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the law will be saved. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. In, uh, over the next nine days, um, Americans are going to be voting. Um, some have already begun. Uh, New York State began yesterday uh, with voting um, for uh, not just the president, but for all uh, positions uh, in the federal government and local governments. Um, and so it's important that we know how to vote and um, you know, make informed decisions. We're providing two uh, documents in the back um, for you. Uh, one is a voter guide. This is just for the presidential uh, election, um, the positions that they have on issues that uh, are particularly of interest to New Yorkers and to Christians. And then uh, the pastor's pen for this month uh, has compared the platform of the uh, Democratic Party with the platform of the Republican Party on a key issues uh, of ethics and other things that impact the church. Uh, so we encourage you to uh, read through those and you can uh, use them for your own um, choice of, of who to vote for and you can also use them to uh, help you be informed when you're talking with others who uh, might have questions about the, the positions that individuals uh, hold. <clears throat> and so uh, let's just take a minute and pray about that election uh, that's coming up and the decisions that will impact this country. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful that the kingdom is not the kingdom of this world. And we know from the scriptures that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. 
that you are uh, sovereignly in charge, as Sean shared in the adult Sunday school and uh, teen Sunday school class today, um, that you are indeed Lord of all. Uh, and so we thank you for that. Uh, but we also know that there is an a opportunity that you give to us in this country that a number of countries do not have, and that is the election of those who uh, would represent us in our government. And so we ask for wisdom and guidance in the selection of those individuals. We pray, Lord God, that we will not be uh, impacted by um, things that uh, physically affect us in this life, uh, material issues and, and things like that, but rather uh, that we would look at your word and we would ask those serious questions. How do those individuals uh, line up with the things that you have said are right and true uh, for the human race? And so we pray that we would be uh, well-informed from the scripture and well-informed about the, uh, the politics. Guide us in that that we might cast a vote uh, that would be, um, at least our conscience would be free as we uh, cast that vote. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in this 10th chapter of the book of, of Romans. We have been studying our way through the, uh, the whole book and looking at the teachings and during the um, past several weeks, we have been looking at uh, the end of Romans 8 and through Romans 9, and there we have seen this emphasis on the, what's known as the doctrine of unconditional election, that, uh, that God has uh, elected from before the foundations of the world were ever set in place, God has elected those who would have eternal life. That marvelous truth that began before creation has its roots in the power of the gospel. Our study of Romans sprang from the opening chapter, chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also to the Greek. The power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And that is a wonderful truth. It is God's eternal plan of salvation for the whole world. Jew, Gentile alike. Egyptian, Italian, Samaritan, Chinese, Ethiopian, and all the rest of the world. When Paul spoke those words, it was for all of those nations, all of those people. Not because anyone deserves eternal life, but because of God's electing grace. Chapter 9 laid out this, this surpassing mystery of God's election and His power for salvation for those who he would bring to faith. A power that would take broken hearts, broken lives, broken people, and he would work in their hearts so that they might become the family of God. 
And we studied that and are memorizing that in Romans chapter 8. We were once enemies of God, alienated because of our evil behavior, the scripture says. But now, due to his electing grace and his justifying mercy, we have become children of God. We have become heirs of all of God's promises. And all of those blessings flow out of what we find in Romans 8 that is often called the golden chain of redemption. God foreknew us. He predestined us. He then called us irresistibly. And in that call, he then justified us in his promise that he would glorify us. What tremendous truth that that is for us. How can our hearts not overflow with praise and adoration and joy in what God has accomplished? The Apostle John, I think, gave us what our response ought to be when he said that we love him because he first loved. Because of what he has done. So songs well up in our our voices as we sing forth his praises and tears spring up in our eyes when we contemplate what Christ has gone through and done on our behalf. Shouts, shouts of celebration ring out, and all because of his electing love. And yet, even as we rejoice in our salvation, and even as we celebrate all that God has done for us, what about those who have not yet come to know the good news of the gospel and experienced it in their lives? What about the lost? And is it fair that they are lost? Paul began to answer that question, the fairness of God in his election, back in chapter 9. And he walked us through that as we studied chapter 9. But now... Here in chapter 10, Paul is throwing the door wide open. He is letting us in to see the mind and the heart of God in fresh and new ways. As we seek to understand this balance between human responsibility and divine sovereignty, between our necessity of response to the call of God and God's divine election. And by the time we finish this 10th chapter of Romans, we will be able to comprehend and understand God's answer and see the fairness of God. But even more than that, we will have the motivation that will drive us to share the good news of the gospel and to support missions. And so as we look at this passage here in Romans 10, verses 5 to 13, I want you to to focus in on this thought, that God extends salvation to everyone equally. God extends, that is, he sends forth 
the offer of salvation to everyone, man, woman, child, anywhere in the world, at all times. And he does it equally to everyone. You see, every human being will stand before God on that day of judgment. And they will be judged, the scripture tells us, by what Paul calls in our text the righteousness of faith. Righteousness of faith. Last week, we made clear from chapter 9, verse 30, to chapter 10, verse 4, our passage last week, we made clear that no human being has a right standing with God based upon anything that they have ever done. That there is no one who has righteousness on their own. And that point is re-emphasized for us in the opening verse of our text in Romans chapter 10, verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. In other words, to put it simply, if you want to stand right before God, apart from Jesus Christ, then you must keep all of God's commands that he has given, and you must keep them perfectly, with no mistake. You see, Paul is talking here about how do you receive eternal life and the ways that people have received eternal life. And the choice is simple. You either receive it by a righteousness of works or you receive it by a righteousness of faith. In verse 5, Moses writes about the righteousness based on the law that is based upon the works that you are going to do, how you will live out those commands that God has given. Since no one, however, has ever even come close to living out the perfection of what God requires, any attempt to please God by a righteousness that grows out of my own abilities is futile. And it is, therefore, a denial that refuses salvation. It refuses God's offer of salvation and tries to exchange that for my own attempt at salvation. This Friday is Reformation Day, celebration of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Now, the key to the Protestant Reformation was a biblical understanding that no one stood before God, no one had a right standing before God based upon their own righteousness. It is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That was the central point of the whole of the Reformation. Every person, however has purposefully and knowingly rejected God as their sovereign Lord and creator. And because of that, they will be without excuse. When they stand before God, if they say, no, I'm not going to trust God's salvation, 
I'm going to work my salvation. I am going to do what's necessary in order for me to please God. Then they will stand on that day without excuse. But the Reformation tackled other major issues besides just justification by faith alone. There were other major differences with the Roman Catholic Church of that day. And one of those is what we find in verses 6 and 7 of our text. There we read, But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. When you look at that passage, there is a tremendous truth that's given to us. You don't have to climb your way to heaven to get the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. And yet that's exactly what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, that you need someone to climb to heaven to bring Christ down to us. The Pope, the bishop, the priests, they have to, to, to stand between you and God. They have to bring Christ down to you. You need also Mary. You need the saints so that they can intercede for you, that they can, they can be mediators on your behalf. It's a denial of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ who alone lived a sinful, sinless life, who alone pleased God in every aspect of His life, who alone died as Redeemer of sinners, who alone rose from the dead as the one mediator between God and man. Therefore, that's a denial of the salvation that comes through Christ Jesus alone. The solas of the Reformation, those proclamations of those great truths, Scripture alone, that reveals salvation of God's grace, uh, through God's grace alone, that is received by faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. To add anything or anyone else to that glorious truth is to deny the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. It is to place fallible people like Pope Francis, who this week gave the blessing of the Catholic Church on homosexual unions, that shows just how foolish it is to place your trust in any human to bring Christ down. The Apostle Paul says, no. Christ alone. Therefore, we declare the divine responsibility for salvation alone. God alone can save. No man, no doctrine and no action can do so. No one has to go up to heaven to bring Christ down or go down into the grave to bring Christ up. Why? Because God has already done that. God already brought Christ down. He already brought Him into this world so that we could know Him and experience Him. And He also raised Him from the dead. 
And in that resurrection of the dead, he declared that what Christ had accomplished at the cross was all that was necessary for the sufficiency of the salvation that God alone can give. So why is Christ still on the cross in the Roman church? I'll tell you why. Because in the Roman church, Christ Death is not sufficient for your salvation. We must add to what Christ has done in order to bring him up from the grave, to make his resurrection have enough power to bring salvation to us. Jesus Christ, however, has been raised from the dead by the glory of God, for the glory of God. He has ascended into heaven as our mediator, our defense attorney. But even more, his word of truth has been brought near to us by the Holy Spirit through the scriptures, as verse 8 proclaims. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth. It is in your heart. Why would any person then think that they have to repeat what God has already done, what he has already accomplished? He raised Jesus from the dead and accepted his sacrifice as a propitiation, a payment for our sins. Well, I'll tell you why again. That the Roman Catholic Church and the Anglicans and other churches like that continue to deny the, self, uh, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And they do so because they want a righteousness of their own. They want credit for what they do a righteousness that comes from human actions and effort. Ultimately, the Roman church and the others that teach salvation through the church, they teach salvation through baptism, they teach salvation through prayers offered and candles burned and confessions made to priests, rosaries said, acts of contrition to be done, much like the Israelites of the Old Testament that did all of those things, thinking that that was what was going to give them salvation, that that is what was going to guarantee them eternal life. They want credit for their own actions rather than giving God glory. That's through faith. We trust in God alone and Christ alone. The Reformation denies the righteousness of works It clings to the righteousness of faith alone. And the righteousness of faith then comes through what Paul calls here in this text, the word of faith. You see, the individuals today that profess this prosperity gospel, they have taken this phrase, word of faith, and they have twisted it. And they have, in doing so, they have caused They've joined in the cause with the Roman Catholic Church, the Anglican Church, and others like that. Because what they're saying with the word of faith faith, is that the word of faith is your ability to get up enough faith, enough effort in your faith to be able to bring about the miracle that you need. It is what you do. It is how you do it. 
so they seek human glory and credit for what is God's and God's alone. Paul ends verse 8 with a simple statement. He says, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. The word of faith that we proclaim. If we went to the book of Galatians, Paul would say there, if anybody teaches another gospel other than the gospel that I have taught you, let him be eternally condemned. Let him be anathema. Cast into the eternal fires of hell if they proclaim anything other than the truth that I proclaim to you. So that word is near because that word is the gospel. The gospel that we have been studying here in the book of Romans that consists of a decision regarding salvation. What is that decision regarding salvation? It is a decision that God is God alone. Salvation comes by faith in Christ alone. For nine chapters, we have been taught what the gospel is. For nine chapters, we have learned the truth about salvation. Chapters 1 to 3, we learned the inadequacy of any human being ever to walk on this planet other than Jesus Christ himself to have a right standing before God based on anything that they have ever done. All have sinned. There is none righteous. Therefore, no one will be justified apart from Christ. Not Mother Teresa. Not Stephen Hawking. Not John Calvin. The end of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4 then goes on to tell us that the only way to have a right standing before God is by faith in the suffering sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the power of God in the resurrection of Christ. God only accepts those who by faith deny their own abilities, reject the fact that they can do anything to please God in any possible way, And so they throw themselves at the foot of the cross to trust in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and him alone. Which led the Apostle Paul to declare in our text in verses 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart one believes and is justified, and with a mouth one confesses and is saved. I want you to to focus in on the middle lines, the last line of verse 9 and the first of verse 10. For with, um, sorry, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you'll be saved. For with a heart one believes and is justified. This is why Zwingli, John Knox, and Melanchthon, and the other Reformation teachers proclaim salvation by faith in Christ alone. Salvation can't come from our outward actions. It must come from a heartfelt faith. Claims to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ 
must include then a belief in his death. You can't believe in the resurrection if you don't believe in the death and the reason for that death. Why did Jesus Christ suffer? Why was he offered as an atoning sacrifice for our sin? It means those with with this kind of faith, that, that heartfelt faith, come to know that their sin is so great that they stand condemned before God. That they are worthy of eternal damnation. We were having a a discussion on uh, Thursday night with my mentoring group about uh, this doctrine that's being promoted today of annihilation. That, that, um, you know, when we die, if we are not in Christ, that uh, we may suffer for a little bit in hell, but then we will be annihilated. We will be wiped out. That would be true if we were measuring by human standards. But our sin is against an eternal God. And that sin will remain in hell against that eternal God. And until we understand that our sin is so high, so great, so wide, that it would take eternity for us to pay the penalty for that sin, we have not yet understood what the cross is about. If annihilation is what the cross is about, then Jesus Christ never would have left heaven. God the Son would never have become flesh if the only suffering that somebody has to do is a few years and then they're done. All right, so maybe some people can be saved. You know, God will do something there, but those other people aren't going to have to suffer. No, it is because that suffering is so great. Because it is an eternal suffering that Christ came. And so for those whose hearts have been awakened to that truth, they have been awakened to the depths of their depravity so that they can cast themselves before the cross and they cry out from their hearts, I am a filthy sinner. I am a wretched enemy of God. But God, you sent your son. You sent him to die in my place to pay that full penalty for my sin. And in his resurrection, you proclaim to all that every sin that I have committed, every sin I am committing, every sin I ever will commit, has been paid for through his death on that cross. And in him, you raised me to new life. I trust in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life. You see, that's the message of the missionaries who call on people to confess the declaration responding to salvation. You see, only when a heart that has understood what I have just said, that understands this powerful, transforming power that takes us from being enemies of God to being children of God, Only then will the true believer willfully and joyfully step out in faith to proclaim 
in the waters of baptism, the confession, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. And that's the declaration that's revealed there in verses 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart one believes and is justified, and with a mouth one confesses and is saved. Notice justification comes before the confession. Justification is based upon faith alone. The confession is a response to that awakened faith. And so you have this twofold aspect of this salvation. Faith. Faith that comes from the heart. A deep-seated, glorious understanding of human helplessness and of the divine grace in the forgiveness of our sins and the giving of new life through Jesus Christ. And this is followed then by a full and glorious stepping forth to declare Jesus Christ is Lord and to step into the waters of baptism. For baptism is not a religious rite. Baptism is not an a, a action of a human being that somehow gains blessings from God because you have done so. Baptism... It's a confession of faith. And it saddens me when the people turn baptism into an act of religion. Especially when performed on babies and small children. As if baptism had some kind of magical quality to it. Baptism is glorious. Baptism is fantastic. But it's glorious because it flows out of a heart that has found the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A heart that joyfully cries out, what hinders me from being baptized? In baptism, the individual proclaims their sinfulness. They recognize that everything about them is unworthy of God. And it also declares the rightness of God in judging them. The wages of sin is death both physical and eternal. And then in that moment of immersion, as they go under the water, that individual releases their selfish ways. They release their life. And they say, I die with Christ. And what he has done at the cross, they surrender themselves to him in the fullness of who he is. And as they rise out of the water, their confession is, Jesus Christ is my Lord. From the top of my head to the tips of my toes, he is Lord. And just in case anyone missed what Paul is saying here, he goes on and clarifies it in the call of faith. You see, back in chapter 8 and again in chapter 9, Paul spoke of the irresistible call of God to his elect that awakens that faith within their hearts that results in their understanding how to receive Christ as their Savior. And this living call of God, it opens up the spiritual eyes of the elect, and they see their danger, and they cry out with Peter, Lord, save me! 
And yet, that call for that salvation, that irresistible call, is not the call that Paul is talking about here in this text. For Paul is talking in this text about the general call of God that goes out to the whole world, to every person who has ever lived. And that's what he talks about in verse 11. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. God extends that call for salvation to every man, to every woman, to every child ever to have lived on this planet. Come to me and be saved. What would the expected response be if you heard God say that to you? Come to me and be saved. You would expect the response to be, I'm coming. I want life. I want you, God. I want to live in your presence and know you. person who would be saved with no distinction related to salvation. No distinction based upon who they are. No distinction based upon their age, where they lived, their ethnicity, or anything else. Now some people would challenge what I just said. They would claim that there have been people throughout the ages, and even today, people who have never heard the truth about God. They've never heard of Jesus or the Messiah. They've had no opportunity to believe in the Lord if they've never heard of Him. For instance, in the Old Testament, they would say only the Jews heard about God, not the Russians and not the Nigerians. And even in the New Testament, the gospel only reached out to the then known world. It didn't come to the Americas. It didn't go to the Pacific Islands. And Paul's response comes to us in verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. It doesn't matter where they live. It doesn't matter who they are. God's general call of salvation goes out to everyone. In Romans 1, we learn that God has clearly revealed his character, his nature, and his power to every human being to ever walk on this planet. Oh, they may not have received the law that God gave to Moses. They may not have heard the message of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, But everyone in the world, everyone, without distinction, has seen the clear revelation of God's glory. Along with the recognition of their own sinfulness and their need for a Savior. Just go back and read Romans 1 and Romans 2. It's very clear right there for us. But everyone in the world without distinction, has seen and knows that there is a God and that they are not God. And they need a Savior. 
Yes, God's general call to come to him and be saved has reached every person ever to live at any period of time since the beginning of history. Furthermore, there has been no denial for anyone who receives salvation by God. No person who has ever called out to God from a heart of faith has ever been turned away. God eagerly waits for a soul who will cast themselves on his mercy. And all of heaven's angels are waiting to rejoice in the salvation of those who would call out on God. And that's the glorious truth that we see in verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. No matter what language they speak. Urdu or Ukrainian, Swahili or Spanish, nor what ethnic people they identify with, God will gladly open wide the gates of heaven for them to come in, which is why missionaries like the Northcuts, the Liskies, are sent to every corner of the world. Unfortunately, no one has ever responded to God's general call. The reformer Martin Luther, he wrote a a book called On the Bondage of the Will, and in it he explained how human heart is so sinful that it rejects God's offer of salvation completely. And that's why the electing call of God is essential. Only God's electing call can free anyone from that bondage of a sinful, stubborn heart. This is why missionaries need to go to all the world, to all the nations, to all the peoples. It's why you and I must share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with our family, with our friends, Without the power of the gospel proclaimed, no heart will ever bow before God. We'll hear more about that next week. And though God should destroy the whole world because of our rebellion, because of the greatness of our sin, the scripture says that he is patient now, patient with us, wanting men and women, boys and girls, to repent And to turn to Christ, which is why we support the missionaries that we do, whether it's Faith Dugan, Nadine Hare, the Sims, Riley Sadler here in the United States, or the missionaries that we support that go out to the rest of the world. It is why we give money for mission agencies like the Bowery and the New York City Rescue Missions here in New York, the Pregnancy Care Center and Samaritan's Purse, the... Uh, Christmas shoebox mission, and so many others. But the call of God must go out to the world so that people will respond by faith as they call on the name of the Lord. God is patient with us. In spite of our brokenness, in spite of the rejection of his grace, in spite of, of our not seeing the need for his mercy, Still, he tolerates us 
so that more individuals may hear the good news of the gospel and might turn and be saved. And you and I have that responsibility to speak forth that truth that the word of God might penetrate hearts, break through that stubborn rebellion as they did for you, as did for me, that faith might be awakened within us and we might repent and be saved. And so in conclusion, I ask you, have you understood the wonder of God's patience? If you see how great sin is, how can God not destroy us? How can he not wipe us off the face of this planet? God still offers, and he is offering it today, and he will offer it until the day that Jesus Christ returns. Will you hear, and will you respond? Some here in this room already have. Some that are watching have already responded to the gospel, and they're rejoicing in these truths that we've shared today. But there may be some that do not know this wonderful, life-changing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And my prayer is that today that you will not continue hardening your heart, but that you will turn and you will be saved. And for those of you who do know Christ, are you committed, committed to sharing the gospel personally and to the nations through our missionary efforts? The gospel must go out. People must hear so that God will save. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, if it was not for your eternal grace manifested in your electing of those for eternal life, there would be no hope but because of what you have done in sending Jesus Christ, there is now hope in this world. Hope of a right standing before God so that we might hear on those, that final day, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your rest. And I pray that your spirit will work today in those who do not know you that you might awaken faith within them and those who do, that they might not hoard the gospel but might proclaim it so that others might hear and by God's grace might believe. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.